Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Our Spotlight episodes take a deep dive into the latest news, issues and ideas on gender equality and female leadership and feature incredible researchers from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and beyond. Earlier this month, Queen Elizabeth II became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee after 70 years of service. Of course, I'm very conscious that the monarchy does not exercise political power and an institution based on birth, not merit, understandably raises egalitarian hackles. But the people of the UK and many around the world did stop to celebrate the Queen's historic reign. So in that light, in this special spotlight episode, we will be exploring what it can teach us about gender roles and images of leadership. Joining me for this conversation is Anna Whitelock, an historian, author and broadcaster who specialises in monarchy. Anna is a professor of the history of monarchy at City University of London and director of the Centre for the Study of Modern Monarchy. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Hi there. The Queen ascended in the 1950s, which was obviously a time of very restrictive gender norms. What impact did it make having a woman in such a prominent position at that time? Well, I think it raised a few eyebrows. I mean, we have to remember the 1950s. Women were very much housewives. Men were the ones who were in in business, in professions, who were leaders. And here was a young woman in her 20s succeeding her father, George VI, who, of course, had come to the throne after the abdication of her uncle, Edward VIII. So it had all been about men for quite a long time since Queen Victoria. And here was a young 20-something woman, relatively newly married, with young children, suddenly stepping up into this very male world. Her prime minister was Winston Churchill. So there was grey-haired men around her. And she was seen as this sort of burst of fresh energy and life. But certainly one, I think, that initially people thought was there to be led. And they didn't have any choice, though, did they? I mean, one, she was the one in the line of succession and it wasn't like there was a boy to pick in the family because she only had her younger sister. Exactly. It was her or nothing. And there was no question about her succeeding, but I think it was about attitudes to her. And at the time, she was quite shy, actually, quite retiring. And I think it's clear that Prince Philip, her husband, was the one who kind of schooled her and encouraged her for example, in public speaking, in her Christmas broadcasts, and kind of pushed her outside of her comfort zone, making her realise that with the media, for example, it was going to be a very necessary relationship and she was going to have to embrace it. 
So she has now ruled for longer than any other monarch in British history, and she's been under the spotlight her entire long life, first as a young woman, then a mother, and now as a grandmother and a great-grandmother, all of these life stages. She's been the queen. She's had the responsibilities that come with that, and the media have had every camera lens trained on her. As you think about each of these stages in her life and her role as queen generally, what have the stereotypes been associated with all of this, the gender stereotypes, and how has she navigated through them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting because, yes, she's been this mother and wife and and then increasingly, you know, grandmother, great-grandmother. And certainly her children have recollected that she was to some extent a distant mother. By definition, she had to be. I mean, quite early on in her reign, her and Prince Philip went on a a long royal tour of the Commonwealth countries and she left her children at home. And, And so in a sense, she was very much pushing beyond gender norms by, first of all, being a kind of working mother, a working wife. Of course, with her husband accompanying her, but very much as the junior partner, quite literally walking one step behind her. So in that sense, she broke gender norms of conventional roles for women. But I think it's interesting to think about, was she kind of a pioneer? Was she inspiring women? Was she showing women a different way of being? And I think that's the interesting question, because although she's a woman from the 1950s, and in some sense was blazing a trail with her husband almost as a house husband, having to give up his career to be at home in inverted commas, or at least supporting her. The irony is I'm not sure that she perhaps is the kind of feminist icon that some people suggest she is, because, as you said in your introduction, she was there by birth and not merit. And I'm not sure what she's done and what she could do, really, to kind of give women a leg up and support them in becoming leaders themselves. Has she reflected on this herself at any stage in her career? I mean, obviously her whole uh, demeanour and it comes with the position of being the queen is to not engage in public explanations. But has she ever been caught publicly, privately reflecting on any of the issues we're talking about now? I think what she has reflected on at key moments is sort of her as a woman, her as a mother, her as a grandmother has suddenly kind of intruded into her being the monarch. And she has got this very public role essentially as boss of the firm. I mean, she is, she runs the firm that is the monarchy. However, alongside that, she's been a a wife and she's been a mother. And I think there's moments where we've seen she sort of, I think, behind the scenes deferred to Philip. So back in the 1960s, inspired by Philip, there was this sort of home fly-on-the-wall documentary of the royal family, which was then subsequently banned from being shown. And it had images of kind of Philip flipping sausages on a barbecue, very much playing the traditional masculine roles. And it, you know, it did suggest that very much at home, in the family, as opposed to the kind of royal family, Philip, you know, was very much the head of the family, but and she kind of deferred to him there. But in public spaces, of course, she was the boss. Then over time, for example, when Princess Diana died, and then more recently with the issues around Harry and Meghan, in some of the public statements she, she's made, she's reflected on as a grandmother, as a mother, she's expressed emotion in that way. We've seen glimpses of the tensions between her 
as a woman at those various life stages and in relation to other members of her family and also as a public figure as this monarch. As you say, the Queen doesn't give interviews, so we haven't really got a sense of her defining her leadership style, her monarchy. Unlike, of course, you know, in any other leadership role, having your manifesto, having a sense of who you are as the boss is absolutely front and centre, but the Queen, absolutely not. I want to take you now to the death of Princess Diana, and you referred to it earlier. Of course, we've seen images of people, you know, out applauding the Queen and outpouring of, of affection. But it wasn't always like that. And one of the most challenging moments for her was in the aftermath of the very tragic and early death of Princess Diana, when the Queen's stiff upper lip style of leadership was held up in negative contrast to the memory of Diana's warmth and empathy. We know from gender research that people react adversely to women leaders if they come across as strong but not empathetic. How much of this stereotyping do you think was at play in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. And you're absolutely right that perhaps for one of the only occasions in the Queen's reign, it was like she'd been wrong-footed by public opinion. She'd been out of touch. In a way, it reflects this idea of her as a grandmother coming up against the role of monarch. In that instance, you know, she was basically at Balmoral in Scotland with her grandsons, protecting them whilst their father had gone off to Paris to basically accompany the body of Diana home. So I think, you know, she was just reacting like, I need to be there for my grandchildren. Now, there's also a kind of royal tradition of withdrawing in mourning. So there was kind of both things going on there. But the national outpouring of grief was such that people wanted to see their queen. And of course, there was the backdrop of Diana... You know, she was divorced at this point. She was outside the royal family. She'd lost her title of HRH. The fact that the royal standard had wasn't lowered to half mast. There was all of this going on. And the newspapers were going, where are you, ma'am? We, you know, we want you back in London. Possibly the gender protective quality of a grandmother kicked in. And she couldn't see the fact that there was an, a bigger or an additional alternative demand on her, which was to make a broadcast, which was to come to London. Now, whether if Charles had been king, whether he would have made a different choice and decided that he had to leave his sons at that point to make a public declaration, I don't know. But certainly the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was by all accounts having to kind of broker this sort of deal whereby she would come back to London and she would realise that this is something that had to be addressed. And she gave that spontaneous, well, it wasn't spontaneous, but it was an unplanned broadcast where she talked really about the example of Diana. She talked about her as, you know, her role as a grandmother. She talked very emotionally. And I think that she got people back on track because, you know, to answer your question, people, you know, got it. People were like, she was protecting her grandchildren, actually. And I think in that moment, sort of all was forgiven. You know, people wanted a figurehead, but then they were like, actually, you know what? You saw the two boys walking behind the coffin and you just kind of thought, she probably did the right thing. This is a complete aside, but reflecting back, I remember watching the funeral of Princess Diana and the boys walking behind the coffin. With modern eyes, when you look back on that, it just seems the wildest choice, doesn't it? The cruelest choice to have had those very young children march in front of thousands of people behind their mother's coffin. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it's seared in the nation or the world's memory. I mean, it's informed attitudes, I think, and the sort of affection for William and Harry ever since. I think both Harry and William actually have reflected on how uncomfortable that was and how sort of damaging actually that was. This image of men behind the coffin. And again, I suppose, thinking about gender, was there some expectation that the men had to all play that role behind the coffin, even though those men, in the case of William and Harry, were teenage boys? You know, if there'd been two young girls, would they have expected the same, you know, for them to walk behind their mother's coffin? I think it's an interesting question. Mm, A very interesting question. And I do want to turn to the younger royals now. I want to focus first on Kate Middleton. I mean, originally she was panned by the media as a vacuous middle-class social climber who was aspiring to be above her station. Then when Meghan Markle was introduced to the world as Harry's fiancée, there was a period where they were all approvingly noted as the Fab Four, Kate, William, Meghan, Harry. But quickly this descended into a pitting of Kate against Meghan, with Kate characterised as warm and devoted to duty, while Meghan got pilloried for almost everything. And there have been numerous examples of the media celebrating Kate and harshly criticising Meghan when they're doing exactly the same, often very trivial things like touching their baby bump or whatever. How should we think about this? Is it just a modern repetition of that age-old phenomenon, the tendency to characterise women as competitors and stylize us as good girls or bad girls? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in that and I would agree with that. I think there's also, I mean, historically, women marrying into the royal family, largely speaking, they were there to provide an heir, you know, so they needed to be kind of pure vessels to provide and produce the heir to the throne. You know, so we look back in history, that was the expectation alongside, you know, more broadly political alliances and marriage alliances. But, you know, Diana was, you know, this young woman marrying Charles who was older than her, but she was seen as this innocent, which was appropriate for her to be carrying the future heir to the throne. I've been reflecting on this and I think there's a kind of deal if you're a woman marrying into the royal family you basically have to give up your voice for a time in order to serve your kind of apprenticeship, which is about standing by your man and being dutiful and not kind of questioning and pushing back. Once you've done that, you are given your voice back. And I think we've seen Kate and then Camilla actually in different ways having served their time and only relatively recently given their voice back. Now, with Meghan, and of course, there's also a racial question about the way in which she was treated in the media. But putting that aside for a moment, there is a sense that Meghan, as an older woman who had her own independent career, came in with her voice and wasn't prepared to give her voice up. She had her own things to do, her own things to say. And I think that jarred with the kind of establishment of, you know, Buckingham Palace, whatever. And so I do think in the treatment of women marrying into the royal family in particular, I think it's absolutely stuck in these gender stereotypes. The way in which these women are observed by the media, you know, how much of the comment on every time you hear is about what she's wearing. And then at the recent Jubilee, you know, there were even reflections on, you know, the kind of parenting of Louis, for example, the young child of William and Kate, and sort of suggesting that 
somehow was, you know, was Kate controlling her four-year-old appropriately? Was he behaving badly? But then the comments on William were, isn't he a dutiful father? So I think there is just really rigid gender norms and expectations around women in the royal family. Yes, the uh, carry on about the parenting. Anybody who's tried to make a four-year-old sit still for a long period of time would have to say, that's what happens. Hi, Jinx. What really is behind this sort of trial by fire, though? If you endure as a woman who's married into the royals, if you endure in silence and play your role of producing children, then at some point you get your voice. I mean, it's really curious, isn't it? It is. But I mean, I think it's true. I mean, you have to be tested. I mean, there's a sense where you have to kind of subsume your own identity in order to uphold the firm. And you have to be seen as a kind of reliable member of that family who doesn't have a blood bond to the monarchy and to doing the right thing and upholding the brand. And so you have to kind of be absolutely trusted and you actually have to be seen to support your husband in the first instance. And you do have to, you know, greet the crowds and stuff. Here we are in the 21st century. Meghan was marrying Harry and actually setting aside her acting career. She'd spoken out about girls' education. She had a number of passions and she had a kind of platform. But if she'd come in and as the fiancé and then the wife of Harry and held events in her own right, talking about those things, I think the media, and they kind of did, were like, know your place. And I think that the royal family need to kind of sort themselves out a bit. They're kind of getting better with the lesser royals. You know, Beatrice and Eugenie, Prince Andrew's daughters, there's not so much expected of them. They're not scrutinised in terms of what they're doing and what they're saying. But the kind of key women that are within the royal family and sort of married to those in the direct line of succession. I mean, people just expect obedience. I mean, there is something really old-fashioned about it. Now, you mentioned before racism, and can we come directly to that? How do you think race has played into the treatment of Meghan Markle? I think it has played into it. And I feel, you know, as a white woman, it is not for me to judge how she has experienced her treatment. And if she feels and Harry feels that things that people have said, looks that people have given is for them an expression of racism, then I think, you know, it's not for anyone else to argue about that. There is also being seen clearly on Twitter explicitly racist things. But I think the more difficult question is, was the pushback against Meghan really quite quickly? I mean, there was this initial warm phase where it's like, oh, my goodness, she's a natural. She's doing the royal walkabouts. The crowds love her. And then it switched really quickly. And was that, yes, this whole thing about a woman, but was it also about a self-confident mixed race woman in that traditional hierarchy and structure that is the monarchy. And we have to remember that the monarchy and the royal family is white. It's white inherited privilege, regardless of perhaps how members of the royal family treated Meghan. And I don't think there's any indication that the Queen was anything other than warm and welcoming because she wanted Harry to be happy. But I do think 
it's totally believable that those sort of palace officials who have their own ideas about what is the norm and what is traditional, having this articulate woman who wasn't, didn't want to surrender her passport and be told she couldn't do stuff. And not only she was a woman, but actually she was a mixed race woman from a completely other country, socioeconomic group, background in all kind of senses. And so I do think race played a role. I think it's not just what she experienced, but also how the reporting of her played out over time. Focusing on the royal family as white privilege, can we come now to the current debates about the royal family, the Commonwealth, the legacy of the approach to colonies, how that has intersected with movements against these colonial identities, the race issue around Meghan. How do you see all of that and how it relates to how the monarchy's seen, how the Queen's seen and what is likely to play out in the future? I mean, certainly I think Meghan and Harry represented an opportunity to engage with the Commonwealth, be seen as the kind of face of the royal family, the monarchy in the Commonwealth. And indeed, in their engagement interview, Meghan actually talked about that. They wanted to do that. And of course, the opportunity there as a non-white member of the royal family engaging in that space, I think there was an opportunity. I mean, pragmatically, there was opportunity to be seen to be something different. And I think obviously that opportunity was lost. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that we're at this moment now where particularly in the Caribbean, and it's often overlooked, there was nine, there's now eight countries in the Caribbean that retain the Queen as head of state. Now, the idea that you now have this white foreign head of state absent for most of the time, who kind of swans in for one or two weeks at a time, maybe every few years, on these very choreographed visits and then leaves again. That just seems, first of all, just politically in terms of, you know, and diplomatically in terms of the country's identity, just bonkers. I think there's also this sense of the optics of that now. You know, the images of Kate and William deliberately aping those 1950s, 1960s images of the Queen and Philip standing there in a Land Rover, sort of taking a salute from their subjects, who of course were predominantly black, just looked so out of date and and smacked of images of colonialism. I mean, it just is the lens through which people see that is through the colonial legacies. And what's made that now more ripe and potent is the Black Lives Matter and the Windrush scandal. And the Windrush scandal was huge in the United Kingdom. It was when the government basically was sending suddenly back to the Caribbean members of the Windrush generation, which were those individuals who came to England post-war on a, a ship that was known as Windrush, who basically helped rebuild Britain after the war. And suddenly the immigration policy was becoming so harsh that it seemed like these people, having settled here for decades, were being suddenly deported back home. I mean, it was a huge scandal. And in the midst of all of that, Commonwealth heads of government met. And the main focus of attention for the Queen and then the takeaway from that was her expressing her wish that Charles would succeed her as head of the Commonwealth, which isn't an automatic right. There's no hereditary principle in who's head of the Commonwealth. It could be any of the members head of state. So she'd expressed that wish. And people felt, particularly in the Caribbean, 
Why was she not speaking out on racism? Why was she not engaging with this massive question? Now, the defence of that is the Queen, of course, has an apolitical role and she can't speak out on politics. And because this was such a scandal that was enveloping the government in the UK, it would be seen like a comment on the government, Her Majesty's government here. But for them, it felt like a letdown. She felt like she was dropping the ball. And that's added to this sense of the kind of unsustainable bonds between former colonies and the crown. And I think in part that explains why, you know, just last year in Barbados, they decided to act very quickly without actually great sort of public consultation to break with the UK crown. And the Prime Minister Mia Motley decided to move now. And in part, this backdrop of the Queen and Black Lives Matter fed into that. One of the other questions that I think that raises which speaks to the moment now and speaks to the Queen's style of leadership, which over the course of the reign has been applauded as she hasn't given an opinion on things, she's stayed above politics in an ever-changing media world where everybody says everything to everybody all the time. She hasn't engaged with that. And instead, I think she's managed to maintain an elusive charisma She's the most famous photographed woman in the world, but also the most elusive one. Nobody really knows what she thinks and who she is. But at the same time, she does have this charisma, which means that heads of state from around the world kind of want to see her and meet her. And people feel when they've had an encounter with her that somehow she knows them. Underpinning that has been essentially her as this mute head of state, doesn't say anything. And I think we're now at a moment, and actually talking to younger people, this has really come out to me. They're just saying, I don't want a head of state who doesn't have opinions on things. Fine not to have an opinion on perhaps the ins and outs of party politics right now, but how can you not have an opinion on racism and not say something? I feel like we've got to the end of the road of that kind of style of leadership and being a constitutional monarch. And the question, though, is... Can you still be a constitutional monarch and therefore regarded as apolitical, but still be able to somehow speak out and speak into the big issues of the day? And already Prince Charles, of course, the heir, is wrestling with that. He wants to speak out more. He has already intervened and spoken out. And even right now, where the British government are trying to implement a policy where refugees coming to the United Kingdom are sent to Rwanda as part of a deterrent for those who get on boats and pay illegal traffickers to bring them to the UK. And Prince Charles has actually spoken out, allegedly, against this policy. The big question is, is that the kind of future monarch we want who speaks out on issues like that? Or is this absolutely beyond the pale? And If you want to be a leader and you're a monarch, well, basically it's leadership like nothing else. You can't have a view on things. And I think that's the big challenge for the future of the monarchy. And can we come now to comparing Queen Elizabeth II back through history with the queens that came before her? I'm thinking particularly about the warrior queen, Queen Elizabeth I, who famously remained unmarried or by contrast, Queen Victoria, who presented herself as a very traditional wife and mother. How do you see those contrasts and how they reflect gender? 
when you think back to our most successful monarchs in British history, actually women feature quite a lot. That in itself is interesting because it was only relatively recently that the law of succession was changed so that actually if you're a a firstborn daughter, you would inherit the throne rather than being superseded by a subsequent younger brother. But looking back through history, it's really interesting that, yes, I think some of these monarchs that are women are seen as some of the best, not least because actually they're long livers. I mean, if we think about Elizabeth I, if we think about Queen Victoria, we think about Elizabeth II, they live for a long time. But it's interesting that all of those women had to deal with the fact that they were women as well as queens. And the discourse around them and their image making was absolutely determined and dictated by their gender. So for Elizabeth I, who ultimately didn't marry, not because she kind of chose not to and she could, that was an acceptable decision, but there wasn't a suitable candidate at the time. And then she basically got old. And what happened for Elizabeth was sort of midway or two thirds into her reign, it was like, oh my goodness, we've got an unmarried postmenopausal queen on the throne. What the hell are we going to do? This is like a political dead end. And it was only then that all the images of her as the virgin queen emerged. And it was seen as she was married to the nation. What an act of self-sacrifice. And the famous Armada portrait depicts her covered in pearls. And if you, she's got a strategically placed bow at her groin level suggesting virginity. All of that was about gender norms. Now, Queen Victoria lent into the gender norms by basically marrying, being a devoted wife, being in love with Albert, Albert kind of taking on a lot of the kind of philanthropic cultural role. She also, you know, used her children. She used the royal family. In fact, she in many ways kind of constructed the royal family as one of the images of monarchy. So absolutely gender dictated that. And I think also the fact that during Victoria's reign, we see the British Empire at its height and all the atrocities that went along with that. And somehow she wasn't entirely seen as badged against that, I think was because of the fact that she was this a woman. And so it was seen as somehow separate she was this mother figure in some of those colonies, even though the British at the same time were carrying out atrocities in her name. And so then Elizabeth II, what she's done, given her longevity, is we've got multiple female roles being played out in her reign. You know, young woman, sister, mother, daughter, great-grandmother. And now I think she is now seen as the grandmother of the nation. And actually, I think that's her legacy. And that's how she will be seen as this woman who grew up in the public glare and who ultimately became the nation's, perhaps the world's grandmother. You've talked there very intriguingly about women and leadership in the monarchy. But if nature takes its course, as one would expect, then over time, we are now going to have three kings in a row. We will have uh, Charles firstly, and then, of course, William. And then in the uh, future, quite a long time away, we will have uh, George, his and Kate Middleton's son. What do you think that will do to the monarchy? I think there is hope that actually the wives are going to play an important role. And in fact, in history, often they have been the powers behind the throne women. I mean, a book was written by an author, Helen Caster, called She-Wolves. 
And it was basically about the women who kept things going behind the scenes, you know, who managed things for their inept husbands for various reasons. So, I mean, well, Camilla is doing more. Camilla, actually, the Queen signalling that she will become Queen has helped that. But I think there's every sense that they are going to be a partnership and Camilla will play a role, but very much deferring, of course, to Charles. With the generation of William and Kate, I really think there is almost a sense that they could become equal partners. By that point, Kate will be performing a really important role. So I think there's a potential sort of dual monarchy. And whereas in the past there was a sense that women had to have a male partner in government, you know, not women monarchs, not least because women were believed to be led by their emotions and they needed to be kind of constrained by a husband and a male partner. I think we could see a sense that a king needs a female partner, that there needs to be a a king and a queen is the right balance. So I think that could really come to the fore with William and Kate. And by the time we get to George, who knows? I mean, I think it's quite interesting that in some of the commentary among the children, actually Charlotte is being seen as, oh, she's keeping her brothers in order. Now, whether that's a kind of bossy girl gender stereotype or whether it points to the fact that maybe Charlotte could actually be the one who keeps things going because actually she looks like she's got a lot about her. I think that remains to be seen. I mean, one of the other things, of course, that the monarchy hasn't even had to engage with in a direct public way is the idea that what would happen if a future heir is gay? or is transgender. I mean, these issues that, of course, are engulfing society hasn't touched the royal family, the monarchy. And you think, how many generations are we going to have to get to, to a point where either the heir to the throne can't have children, or marries a same-sex partner, or is transgender? You know, all of these issues also potentially come into play in the future. I mean, so much of the monarchy and the royal family has been defined by a society that no longer actually exists now. And at some point, they're going to be properly touched by it. The first time they were touched by it in a way of like modern multi-faith, multi-ethnic society was Meghan. And we know how that ended. So let's see, you know, how they deal with future challenges when and if they get there. What an interesting conversation and some very big things to think about for the future. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining me on this Spotlight episode. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.